0: we don't like about our bodies we're not going to be able to fix with our bodies Um, it is the broken body of Jesus that is the ultimate answer to our bodily brokenness not our trying to fix our own bodies in whatever way we think is right in our minds so I want to say to to a friend who's wrestling with gender dysphoria not to put their hope in themselves and in what can be done to their body the hope is in what has been done to Jesus' body, because that that deals with the ultimate brokenness and pain that's behind all of these things. And you know, through his his body, we will eventually have healing. It may not be in this life, but it will be. It will be there. We will be in resurrected bodies um, where there will be no pain and no shame, no kind of dysphoria. And that that is where our our hope is for for those kinds of battles.
1: It's watering time, everybody! It's time for Apollos Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our... Deep Conversations! A deep conversation with author, apologist, and pastor, Sam Alberry. What does the Bible say about our bodies, and why does it matter? Why do so few churches talk about our bodies, and why do we as evangelicals have such a poor understanding or theology of our bodies? What do our bodies have to do with the formation of our identities? especially our sexual identities. Does that affect our understanding of sexuality? Well, these are just a few of the questions as that we will be discussing today. Sam is a pastor, apologist, author, and speaker. He's the author of a number of books, including Is God Anti-Gay? Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? Seven Myths About Singleness, and his most recent book, What God Has to Say About Our Bodies. Originally from the UK, he is serving on staff at Emmanuel Church in Nashville and has been a frequent contributor for the Gospel Coalition and so many more organizations. And today, we are honored to have him on Apollos Watered. Listen in as Sam and I discuss his story and his book, What God Has to Say About Our Bodies. Happy listening. Sam Alberry, welcome to Apollos Watered. To be here. Thanks for having me. Well, it is a delight, but are you ready for the Fast Five? No. (laughs) Was that the first one? (laughs) Okay, here we go. Coffee or tea? Neither. Neither. Really? I've never liked either. What do you drink?
0: Uh, I drink sparkling water, San Pellegrino. I I live off that stuff.
1: Wow. All right. I would figure from the UK, I would expect tea, but no. Okay, how about this one? If you were a food what food would you be and why? (laughs) Um, If I was a food, so if I was a food, do
0: I want to be eaten or do I not want to be eaten?
1: (laughs) It it doesn't matter. Um, (laughs) If you were a dish, food, dish. A dish. I would go for, I mean, my favorite
0: dish is Thai curry, so I I would try and be a Thai curry.
1: So a bit of spice in your life? Is that what it is? You're a spicy guy? Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Plus, the, the
0: fun you can have then is that certain people will eat you and then, You'll just be spectacularly too hot for them, say. So. <laughs> in, my, in my embodied form, I'm not generally too hot for people, but maybe as a foodstuff, I could uh, realize that particular ambition.
1: <laughs> okay, here we go. Give me the top five reasons why Star Trek is better than Star Wars. Um, <laughs> I do like Star Trek, but I do prefer
0: Star Wars. <laughs> um, I like the optimism of Star Trek. I grew up on The okay. Next Generation, so I like the sort of, there's an ability and a kind of, you know, um, yeah, I, there's a principledness to it, um, but it's it's a bit more dull than Star Wars.
1: Which which do you like of Star Wars? I mean, which is your film? The classic, or the original trilogy. The original um, trilogy.
0: And everything else that's been set in and around the original trilogy. So, so you don't One, like the Mandalorian... Love those. Prequels are like the Gnostic Gospels of the Star Wars world. They <laughs> they just shouldn't count. And the new ones were okay. <laughs> but the new ones were quite disappointing. They they clearly didn't know what they were doing. And each director kind of grabbed a steering wheel and lurched the car in a different direction. And then the next one would lurch it back in the other direction. So it's kind of a tug of war between Ron Johnson and J.J. Abrams.
1: Hmm. That, some good stuff you, there,
0: but but it wasn't great.
1: That was so good how you transitioned to that. I set you up and you backed out and redirected. Because <laughs> a, a good friend of ours gave me some some material ahead of time, and he says you are a huge fan of Star Wars and you hate Star Trek. <laughs> I don't hate Star Trek. <laughs> you don't hate it? No, I don't like it. No, I
0: like it. I just like Star Wars more. Okay. All right.
1: So how about the next fed, one?
0: You've been fed misinformation. Just don't I have. have he set again. me
1: up. He set me up. All right, then. So this, we'll find out how much he set me up. Because we, we know that you moved to the U.S. because the U.S. is better than the United Kingdom. But why is the U.S. better than the United Kingdom? Um, it
0: has more need of college oh. Englishmen like me. Um, and I'm, I'm still moving, actually. I'm still waiting for a visa. So it's not, oh, really? even, not even done it yet. Um there are certain things that, that the U.S. does way better than the U.K. Um, lemonade would be one. Optimism, customer service, um, geography, as in, as in just having a big place to play around with. And certain things we do better than you, I think, like chocolate. Mm. Um, American chocolate is, is just horrible. So,
1: What's the difference? Um, What's the difference?
0: As doesn't taste of wax.
1: I think it is probably <laughs> something to do with
0: rules about dairy and pasteurized milk or something. Our chocolate tends to be creamier. Really? Um, so, and our, our, by the same token, our cheese is better as well. So. Okay, um, wow. That's my theory anyway.
1: UK cheese is better than British. Have you been to Wisconsin?
0: Yes, and I had those, whatever those curdy things are.
1: Cheese curds, yeah. Yes. You didn't like them?
0: They were okay, but...
1: It's not English it's like the, cheese.
0: The, yeah, it's it's plasticky. <laughs> can I say that? Yes, you
1: can. Yes, you can. I'll find out. Well, let's 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 talk about then because you do come from the UK, been in the United States, but you've also traveled. I mean, you've taught in different places. So, what is the strangest or funniest cross-cultural experience you have ever had?
0: I was in Thailand and I was doing some English teaching and I was up country off the tourist track. Um I was at a kind of high school. There was a team of us. We were based at the high school. We were doing conversation classes and that kind of stuff. But someone approached the host and said, hey, can he come and do some other things while he's here? One of which was, we've got a regional training day for English teachers. Would he be willing to come along to that? So I thought, yeah, why not? One, one Saturday, I can I can do that. Um, so there I was in that that province's day for english teachers and for some reason as we gathered they said well we're going to begin the day by singing um by having you know we have like a a theme song that we we use and we're going to have you sing it so here's the karaoke machine so i was up there in front of however many dozen english teachers in the middle of thailand singing stevie wonder's i just called to say i love you and the screen that had the lyrics bouncing along for me to follow, the, the imagery that went with the lyrics was the most inappropriate stuff you can possibly imagine. I don't know why they had that particular song set to that particular set of images, but um, I was trying to sort of ignore the just crazily graphic, explicit images that I was seeing so that I could just see the words so that I, I don't even sing well. So the whole thing was just the, the craziest experience. I, was like, it, I thought I was here to teach English, not watch really awful footage and sing a Stevie Wonder song badly.
1: Was this before YouTube or was this during YouTube? It was YouTube? before
0: YouTube. I would have joined the FBI witness protection program otherwise <laughs> and dropped off the face of the planet. Who was your hero in the faith? Yeah, I, one of my heroes in the faith is Hudson Taylor. Oh, yeah. In terms of guys from the past um I, I really appreciate his wisdom and care his um being able to sift through what's what what are my baggage is cultural what is christian and making sure he doesn't export britishness but just the gospel to china
1: which is really what we're trying to do um as you mentioned that, just because he's also one of the heroes of my my own faith. And I think you would re- recognize that more than others, having been into the United States from the u k and asking yourself oftentimes what's American and what's British. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you you come to a, a greater conclusion as you do so. So let's let's get into the Sam Albury story. Let's hear your story. Who is Sam Albury? Um he
0: is. Someone who came to faith aged 18, having not really had any Christian sort of background um, to speak of, um, back and forth over whether I believed in a God as a teenager, Mm. made some Christian friends when I was 16, 17, who became very good friends of mine. They invited me to their church's youth ministry. And the very first time I went, I'm so thankful I I did not need to be entertained. I didn't particularly need more friends. I, I needed the gospel i needed to be saved and they they explained the gospel to me and the first time i heard it i just instinctively knew it was true and moreover i knew that i needed it um i was a pretty well-behaved teenager by and large i didn't drink or smoke or go off the rails um but i had this sudden awareness that if there was a god who made me i didn't know him and that i was therefore estranged from him i was i was lost and wonderfully heard that The whole point of the Christian message is a God who comes to find the lost. So I came to faith that that summer, that was summer of 1993. um, Grew up with a very significant fear of public speaking. Um, Had been bullied a fair bit at high school. And so the last thing I wanted to do was was be visible um, in front of a large group of people. That would just, whatever happened, they would have ammo of some kind. But... Soon after I came to faith, um, I felt the Lord calling me to be a preacher. And it's the most counterintuitive mm. kind of development. It was not remotely the direction I would have wanted my life to go in. And I just sensed from the very early days of my Christian faith that God wanted me to help help serve and feed other believers. Mm. And that was all I've ever wanted to do as a, as a Christian is Somehow, by God's grace, to strengthen His people in any way that I can.
1: How did your family receive that when you go to this youth group? And was it in an Anglican church?
0: It was, yeah, yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah, they
0: were they were. I mean, very, very tolerant. Um, My parents had both been brought up to go to church when they were kids. We never did when I was a kid. Um, So it wasn't a completely unfamiliar kind of thing in in their in their mind. I've got two. Uncles who are ordained in the Church of England, they would would be fairly different to me in terms of theological convictions. Um, So, again, the idea of someone going into the church wasn't a completely novel idea. I think they were concerned. This was the early 90s and not long before I came to faith. The headlines had been full of David Qureshi and Waco, and they were just nervous of getting too involved in religious stuff. But it was an Anglican church, and um, they are typically very unfanatical in my part of the world. So they they felt slightly reassured that I was, you know, Church of England is not very cult-like. So um, they they've always been very supportive in a you know whatever you want to do, we will support you in kind of way.
1: So you went from there and went to get training. After that, yep. And then what happened after after that? How did you get to where so, you are today? Yeah, I
0: went to an Anglican seminary, um, then got ordained in the Church of England, worked at a church in Oxford for a few years with student ministry, and then moved to another church um, slightly further in towards London, a town called Maidenhead. was there for several years, and I, I had never any aspiration to do anything other than work for a church. I, I wasn't looking to... Be anything or be anyone in particular, um, but I had always pre-Christian and, and during my Christian life wrestled with with same-sex attraction, and that was something I had begun to share with friends and family. Um, had no intention of sharing it any more widely than that. Certainly, so didn't want to be someone who spoke on that. Mm-hmm. But with the, the cultural shifts that then happened um, in the early. 2010s, as both sides of the pond, the issue of gay marriage was revisited and then very mm. kind of popularly embraced and endorsed. Um, I could see many people in the church beginning to to change their views on it. Um, people I'd trained with, people I'd respected were beginning to to shift. And I just had this conviction that we, we need some people to speak into this issue from within it. Um, mm. And I just felt, I I just felt the burden on my heart to say to folks, God's word to people in my situation is a good word, not a bad word. And we shouldn't feel like the the gospel is a bad deal for our gay friends. Mm -hmm. So tentatively started to open up about that a bit more publicly. Um, Wrote a couple of articles on it, just saying a bit about my own story and spoke at one or two places on it. And I had no idea if that would be something I could even speak about comfortably. Um, it had been a cause of, of so much shame. But I discovered very quickly that A, apparently I could speak on it. I it didn't completely undo me speaking on it. I felt actually I, I had a clear head and it didn't seem to phase me as much as I thought it would. And I then realized almost immediately that there was just a huge need for for that kind of perspective um, within the wider church and that led to writing a book on it and um, began to, you know, one of the things that had marked my time when I was at university, I was doing a course that included a lot of theology and it was at a very secular university. Um, So our teachers were not pro-Christian. Most of them were post-Christian in one way or another um one of the things that marked that season was as I I would walk to campus I had normally a 30 minute walk from where I was living to campus I would try and think through what are the questions are going to come up in the class today and what what could I say in response Mm. and that that's always been the way I've been wired is trying to think through what what's the objection to that what is someone going to say to that and then how do you respond to them and as I was beginning to speak on on sexuality it it sort of it was a, a a way of of using that kind of tendency too, and to think, well, okay, what what are the questions people are going to throw back at me for this? What are the ways I can anticipate those? And that that sort of then broadened out into working for an apologetics ministry. And although I've never had a a, a single hour of apologetics training, um, having a slightly skeptical mind myself and being a pastoral ministry, you you encounter and deal with people's doubts and questions and objections, and you have to do it at a ground level. Um, so I found myself just sort of speaking more widely on various, whatever was bothering people in in our culture I wanted to speak into. Um, it's hard getting people to talk about Jesus. So you think, well, what are they already talking about and how can I bring a uniquely Christian perspective into that conversation? Mm. So that's, that's sort of been where things have been. And at the moment, I'm waiting for a visa to be based at a church in Nashville. So I will be kind of half being a pastor there and half being an apologist around the place as well.
1: So you're traveling around the world?
0: Um, yes, as as and when COVID lets me.
1: <laughs> and we have your most recent book here uh, from our friends at Crossway, what God has to say about our bodies. And I I, I mentioned that because I'm also reading why does God care who I sleep with? And so I've got that from our friends at the the Good Book Publishing Company. And so I want to talk about this one, though, because I think it is a very important item to have in our conversation. As you said before, there are so many things that are going on right now in our culture. It seems like every time I turn on the news, there is something LBGTQ related, and it's in the the popular conversation. And There is a great deal of confusion in regards to sexuality. Why do you think our culture has shifted so quickly in moving from a biblical understanding of sexuality to a place where even those who would consider themselves evangelical Christians are embracing the idea of not only gay marriage, but homosexuality as an alternative practice that is completely okay in a certain confine? How do you you respond to that?
0: Yeah, I, I'm not sure how much we were adhering to a biblical sexual ethic. I think we were in certain aspects, in that we had a, a definition of marriage that was heterosexual. I don't think in many other respects we were particularly um, wedded to a biblical worldview on that. But um, I think our, our anthropology changed. Um, we, and, you know, your previous guest, Carl Treman has traced this out so mm-hmm. um, brilliantly, so well. Um, I'm not going to attempt to 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 do that but um yeah we we've increasingly used ever since i think therefore i am we've we've begun to train ourselves that the answer to to the big questions of life begins with i hmm. and i think that has snowballed its way down to the present day hmm. and that the big shift as far as i can see is that um we got to the point where in terms of our our, our anthropology I am who I feel myself to be deep down inside. That's the real me. Um, that has been a shift, and that shift means that um, self-expression is the highest virtue. Um, accepting other people's identities and expressions is is the obligation of the rest of, of society, and it means we we have this view of identity where I am my sexuality or I am a woman trapped in a man's body, or I am non-binary or whatever it might be because I call the shots. I'm if, if this is who I feel myself to be, then that's, that's who I am. That's the authority now is my subjective experience of myself.
1: Mm. What then led to, to you writing this book? I mean, why this book? What, what God has to say about our bodies?
0: Yeah, well, having done lots of ministry around the issue of human sexuality, um, just realizing when it comes to confusion about sexuality, confusion about gender identity, confusion about who we are, we, we actually need to go upstream of all of those very sensitive discussions that are going on around us and think, well, what, is, what does the body mean? Um, Because it seems to me that that is is the issue that feeds into all these other issues. Um, We don't know. Contemporary culture does not know what the body is Mm. anymore. We we don't have any shared understanding of a creator, even previous generations, even if they were just nominal Christians, at least had a a framework of God, whoever that was, made us. Um, We don't have an origin story now other than, apparently the universe coughed itself up into existence and I'm here somehow. Um, so we, we need something that shows, we just need to be reminded that we have intrinsic value and worth and meaning and dignity, and that our physicality is significant, it's meaningful. I was also just finding more and more pastoral issues within the church where if people had a, a good foundation on what the bible says about the body that would help them pastorally with eating disorders image of body uh, all kinds of other issues people were getting tangled up in and obviously looking over the fence our, our catholic friends have been far more attentive to a the theology of the body than than we've tended to be um, and so i thought okay it would be good good to do some teaching on what the bible says about our bodies and as i was teaching on it i found lots of fruitful conversations coming out of that teaching and that led me to to write
1: how have we then traditionally marginalized the body we as you mentioned we've not talked a lot about it there's not been a lot of writings about it but it seems as of the last few years i've seen more books that are addressing this issue yeah because they feel that it has been neglected but why have we marginalized it so much well, I think part of the reason we neglected it was probably that there wasn't an urgent need
0: to talk about it. Um, up until relatively recently, we we had enough overlap with our culture about our bodies that we didn't massively need to sort of rethink the theology of the body. Whereas now that we've we've kind of, again, gone into a cultural period where the body is seen as being entirely incidental to who we are, that actually forces us to, to re-examine what we believe um, and not simply to, to go with the flow on that. So um, some of these cultural shifts um, obviously have, have not been good or healthy, but they've they've been actually necessary for the church because it, it's made us have to look at things that we had previously assumed and, and not been attentive to.
1: Which is why I find your book very fascinating. Um you are very much pastoral when you write. You're not writing it as an academic. As you mentioned before, we had Truman on the show, and he has a, a tremendous heart, but he's a scholar. And, yeah, he's and got he, a brain
0: the size of Jupiter.
1: Yeah, he's, 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 he's and he's an amazing scholar. Fascinating mm. the insights that he comes up with. But I found that your book was much more sensitive to people that are in the midst of a struggle now. You are yeah. extending something to them. You're not condemnatory. Um, you're not pushing them away. You're not just putting them down or dismissing them. But you, as you said before, someone who is within the quote-unquote movement or have been within the movement that that understanding, because that's the 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 sin that you've had to deal with. We and we all have those sins. We like to talk about in our in our ministry. We talk about our our dent of disobedience. We all have a disposition to something. Mm. Yeah, and. Everyone has has it. It's just what's your dent, you know, and mm-hmm. it comes out in different ways. Uh, because I know that this issue has been very important to me, having seen it firsthand in in family members and friends. And uh, I lived in New England when gay marriage became legal, mm-hmm. and I remember being actually at the Boston Commons steps that day when the final vote went through, and it was a very hostile place. There were men police officers on horseback. There was a large group of people supporting it and they were singing Bible songs, which was Mm. the oddest, most surreal Mm. thing to me. And people were driving down the street, giving them the thumbs up, honking their horns while looking over to where we were. And we were simply asking for the right to vote because it was taken away from the citizens and people were giving us one way signs to heaven. Um, And, it was very unpleasant. Um, You could just feel the tension in the air. So to see someone come at it, not shouting because there were people, even when we were there that were shouting that made you feel embarrassed to be a part of it because it was just, it was, it was people were responding with almost equal vitriol and it became much more tense with the police there and everything else. And seeing that though, really, stuck in my mind, because at the time I remember th- thinking to myself, this is, could be quite our, our generation's faith alone in a way. I I knew 17, 18 years ago that this was going to be a dividing line within the church. And it's, it's become that, but to see someone like yourself writing to address these issues and helping people along is, is quite refreshing. And, and, and you do address so many things. You talk about gender dysphoria. So I want to talk about that just for, just for a moment. Because some people just kind of dismiss it. A lot of Christians don't know what to do with it. Most people that I know, they just want to put their head in the sand and hope it go away. But we know that it's a real thing. Why is it so important for us to have a proper understanding of our bodies, though, when we discuss it?
0: Yeah, that's it's such a big, a big issue and a big question. Um, we we can't ignore it because it's. It's something that's being forced onto the table to, to think about and talk about. Um, it shows no signs of going away. And actually, we've got good news to offer a hurting world on, on this kind of thing. So the, the body matters because in this conversation because much of the prevailing thinking about gender dysphoria is that the solution to it is to prioritise someone's psychology over their biology. And so whatever they think is who they are the body needs to be conformed to. Um, the biblical account of things is is very different to that. Um, our, our bodies are are fallen and complicated. We we don't have a straightforward relationship with them, but there is something biologically grounded about mm-hmm. us being male and female, and we we understand within the, the Christian way of thinking that the body is is both a gift and a calling. Uh, we have been Fearfully and wonderfully made. That means that we can't write off our bodies as being accidental or incidental, and nor can we, nor can we reject them. Um, however, pained we feel by having them, um, but I think you know, I think there's there's lots of ways Christians can and should respond to an issue like gender dysphoria. the pain is very real, mm-hmm. and we need to be people who are compassionate, who are understanding. Our own theology, I think, gives us an account of how someone could be experiencing gender dysphoria. We know that creation has been subjected to frustration. We know our bodies are part of that creation. So it's, it's, it's not a surprise to me that some people will feel that out of sorts in their own flesh. And either demeaning them or kind of just saying that they're wrong is, is not actually going to help them. Um, whereas we can, we can say to them, listen, I'm I'm not going to pretend to know what it feels like to be you, but I do know what it is to be in a broken body. And therefore there is solidarity here. Um, we can also say that we know that underlying our our various forms of bodily brokenness is a, is a deeper spiritual brokenness. And therefore trying to fix the one without attending to the other means we're not going to get very far. So Whatever we don't like about our bodies, we're not going to be able to fix with our bodies. Um, It is the broken body of Jesus that is the ultimate answer to our bodily brokenness, not our trying to fix our own bodies in whatever way we think is right in our minds. So I want to say to, to a friend who's wrestling with gender dysphoria, not to put their hope in themselves and in what can be done to their body the hope is in what has been done to Jesus body because that, that deals with the ultimate brokenness and pain that's behind all of these things. And, you know, through his, his body, we will eventually have healing. Um, it may not be in this life, but it will be, it will be there. We will be in resurrected bodies, um, where there will be no pain and no shame, no kind of dysphoria. Um, And that that is where our our hope is for for those kinds of battles.
1: We're gonna take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner with them. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLT Bibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone. From kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today because understanding the Bible changes everything. And the NLT is the Bible you can understand. And we're back. In this second part of the conversation, we delve further into Sam's story and specifically get into his detractors, his critics, those who come at him from outside of the church and those even from inside the church. And really what's at stake is a misunderstanding of original sin. If we don't get original sin right, then we fail to understand the depth of what the crucifixion meant as well as misunderstand how our salvation is worked out in our sanctification. I really enjoyed this part of the conversation because we got really deep into the heart of who we are, as well as God's heart for us and what it means to be a follower of Him. Enjoy this second part of the conversation. When you share this message, because your insight is very—it's biblical, Um, not that I'm telling you that, you already knew that, honoring to the Lord, but yet because this is something that you yourself, not gender dysphoria specifically, but same-sex attraction, do you find then that you are criticized more fiercely from those who are living actively in that lifestyle now? I get some
0: fierce criticism. Most of those people don't even know I exist. I'm not really on the radar. Um, I've had the opportunity from time to time to do things at various secular universities and have even done events at some secular LGBT groups, um, which have been at times tense, Mm. but also extraordinarily fruitful. Um, I think I get more heat from. From other Christians than I do from people on the left.
1: What do you? What is that criticism?
0: Um, it would be something along the lines of if I had repented properly, I wouldn't still face these temptations. Uh, that I'm legitimating having same-sex attraction. That I'm I'm actually promoting it. I'm the the sort of the fifth column or whatever that that thing is about. You know. Trying to smuggle it into the church. So on the one hand, I've got people, I know some gay rights activists who who routinely say to me that I'm responsible for for gay teenagers committing suicide. And then I, I have people on the Christian right saying, you're secretly trying to, to legitimate gay marriage in the church. Um and it's 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 baffling to hear both of those things even on the same day. Um And I kind of think, well, I wish you guys would just talk to each other and then figure out where you think I stand. But um, that's just the way the the world seems to be at the moment, sadly.
1: How do you try to illustrate that to your critics? Like, Because I've read that about you, um, where there have been those watchdog ministries that are out there that seem to want to go after everybody. If it doesn't fit a certain thing in their mind, and 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 I've wondered though for them, yes, they might say that you are a brand new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come, and the Son sets you free—or free indeed. I've heard these verses, and and I believe them, but in the way that they're applying them, I, I struggle with it because mm-hmm. it's it's like you've never ever struggled again. And I'm like, well, where do we do with Romans seven?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Where and that that's the issue I think is I want to.
0: I I think it's inconsistent to say of one type of temptation, something you're not saying of other types of temptation. So I had someone come up to me once and say that they were a counselor who, who did some form of reparative therapy or conversion therapy. And they said, you know, I promise you, I can counsel these temptations out of you. Would you like me to do that? I'd be willing to do that for you. I said, well, that's very, very kind for you to offer me that. I said I've got a couple of questions. I, so, you know, just to help me kind of figure this out. Um, are you guaranteeing that if you counsel any kind of same-sex temptation out of my system, are you guaranteeing I won't ever experience sexual temptation again? And they said, No, we can't guarantee that. So I so, said, So I'll be experiencing heterosexual temptation. And they said, Yeah, I guess so. And I said, then I'm swapping one form of temptation for another form of temptation. That doesn't sound like a massive net gain for me. And at least with the temptation I have now, I've got a few decades of experience learning how to fight it. And I don't know why being tempted by this person rather than by that person is is some sign that I'm now more holy. I just want to be holy. I don't want to be anything other than that. And the other question I said to them is, Can you give me a theological justification for why you think this kind of temptation is better than this this kind of counseling and deliverance, whereas other forms of temptation might not be? So, you know, what, what is your temptation? What are some of the things that you regularly find yourself having to keep mortifying? And why aren't you counseling yourself out of that? So there's, there's an inconsistency there that, that I've, no one's quite explained to me about why. Well, with that kind of temptation, that, that can be done away with. But with my kinds of temptations, whoever they are, apparently it's fine. And I, I think what it really comes down to is we, we know the spirit has come to, to bring conviction of sin. Amen. The danger is we become more convicted by other people's sins
1: than our own. When I, when I was in New England and uh, that was on the agenda,
0: hmm.
1: my question became, why does one person struggle with something and another person doesn't? Like, I, I don't have same sex attraction, but I know people that do, and I, but I've got my own sense. And, and I remember my wife saying to me one time, uh, a friend of ours was struggling with uh, anorexia. Hmm. And I was like, I don't get it, it's just food. And she goes, but she doesn't get your issues. That hit me and struck me, and I was meditating on James chapter one, when each of us is tempted by our own sinful desires, right? Yeah. And then Romans chapter five, death came into the world to all men, you know, through one man, and, and therefore through all sin. And then he gave me this illustration. I just want to run this by you to get your thoughts and, and tell me about it. But he he gave me a picture of this guy driving an 18-wheeler, lorry. You know, a semi truck, as we say in America. And it's got all these cars in the back. And they're in rows. And the driver is told he can drive wherever he wants to drive. Except one place and it says, do not enter death ahead. And he drives around for a while. He's enjoying it. But then he sees someone come out one day from that gate and closes it. And he stops and he rolls his window down. And he says, hey, how come you get to drive there and I don't? He goes, you can too, but you actually have to push your truck through it. If you push your truck through it, you can go. And he goes, oh, okay. So he pushes his truck through and it goes straight up a hill. And he doesn't realize that the hill is at the end of a cliff and he drives it off. And all of those cars were in the back of that trailer and they rolled out in different ways. And each one was broken in a different way. Some the roof was in, some of the doors Some, of the axle windows, all different. And, and you can probably see where I'm going there, but the driver of the truck was Adam. So when Adam sinned, we were all born with what we call, as I mentioned before, dents of disobedience, a disposition to certain sins. Because for, for the life of me, like you said, people would criticize stuff and not others. I had a guy in a, uh, a staff meeting. He was another pastor. And I had mentioned in a sermon, bestiality. Hmm. And for, for those that are struggling with bestiality or pedophilia or homosexuality or pornography, you know, whatever it was. And he goes, why do you say bestiality? And I said, because I know there there are people that struggle with that. And he's like, come on. And I'm like, yeah, I've got an international congregation. I guarantee you. And and I come from a small farm town. And there was always Mm. somebody trying to have sex with an animal. There just was. And the same with pedophilia. I said, pedophilia comes from somewhere. Mm. And that's why I couldn't understand the gay marriage angle. I went, why is that one okay? And this one's not. And I understand it's different because it's young and it's too. It, 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 there's a lot of different factors to that. But when I, when God gave me that illustration, I've, I've spoken on campuses nothing like you have, and I I remember one time talking about that very issue, and we were debating gay marriage, and I brought up that illustration, and they were all ready to pounce. It was tense, but when I gave that, the whole conversation shifted. Yeah. Because I was saying then that. We all have a dent and everyone knows it. Everyone knows what the that's, dent that's is. That's the thing I've, I've found I'm, I'm
0: increasingly doing teaching on sexuality now in, in culturally conservative parts of the world. Um, Just before the pandemic, I was in East Africa, I was in um, Cuba on another occasion. And I know that if I was to open with my story of same sex attraction, that would, for yeah, some of them, they, they that down. would be it. So I have to sort of think through, okay, this, this, this would work in the west but it won't work here and there's i've i've got a piece of paper where i've i've written down the various things that need to be theologically in place for them to be ready to hear about a christian who wrestles with same sex attraction we need to cover the the universality of the fall yep we need nice. to cover the universality of temptation that becoming a christian doesn't mean we don't face temptation anymore um and one or two other things, but kind of once we've kind of walked through those things, they can then be like, oh, oh right, yeah, yeah, okay, now I can see how you would have a Christian who still faces that as a temptation. But you've got to deal with that. I mean, that the gospel always puts us in the same boat, and, and it's we leaked. need to theologically do that, yes. Because um, that's the only thing that that stops us really – saying, well, I'm a better person than you are, is thinking, actually, no, Jesus puts us both in the same boat. I'm, my temptations may look very different to yours. Some of them may be objectively worse, but we are still fundamentally in the same boat. We're, mm-hmm. we're all in Adam. Um, mm-hmm. So there's there's no real place for snobbery. Um, and there's no place for excluding someone else. And when I get asked by by someone at a, public forum on a university campus in the West, you know, are gay people going to hell? Yes or no? My answer is, well, if there's no hope for gay people, there's no hope for anyone.
1: That's a great answer. It's a Jesus answer.
0: It's, we're in the same boat, um, fundamentally. Um, So that, that helps us. I think it protects us from some of the worst inclinations of Phariseeism within us. Um, but I hope it keeps all of us humble. All of us have got a lot to be humble about.
1: You're exactly right in that. In the book, you talk about masculinity and femininity, but you also mention how they're culturally conditioned in some way. Because oftentimes when we look up femininity or masculinity, especially within conservative Christian circles, let's say, mm. there's a, a very, it's much more culturally Determined and conditioned than necessarily a biblical understanding of what mm. masculinity and femininity is. Why is that so important to hold on to that distinction in the here and now?
0: Yeah, there is so much confusion around us about gender identity and, and what is a man and what is a woman. We can unwittingly add to that confusion if we're saying things about being a man and being a woman that the Bible just doesn't say. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've met wonderful, godly men who have been made to f- wonder if they are real men because of some quite arbitrary cultural stereotype that's been placed on them by the church. Um, if they're not sporty, they're not a real man, or if they're not whatever it might be, or not loud or brash or something. And you sort of think, well, that, nowhere does the Bible say that I have to be athletic or sporty to be a real man. Um, so we, we don't want to... Our culture is saying much less than the Bible does because our culture is saying male and female is not really a biological distinction anyway. Um, but I, th- I think sometimes the church ends up saying more than the Bible says by saying oh, well yeah. being a being a man means X, y, and Z and we're putting things on people that, that God doesn't have hasn't said and that's that's always a very serious error um, and some of the cultural responses have been to, I think, that kind of Christian extra-biblicism. Um, and then the more we see the kind of cultural soup of gender identity, then, then the more the church sometimes is tempted to be even more specific on exactly what it means to be a man and exactly what it means to be a woman. And there are some things that are, are meant to be true of men and true of women. But it's one of those areas where we we really need to make sure we say only what the Bible says to the extent that the Bible says it and with the same kind of tone that the Bible says it.
1: How would then you define or describe, let's say, masculinity to someone and femininity to someone?
0: Well, that's the the $64,000 question, and it's really hard to answer because mm. some of part of the answer will depend on where they
1: are culturally speaking like what yeah. arena yeah
0: because there are, you know our masculinity and femininity has to be embodied and culturally expressed somewhere and some of those cultural expressions are morally neutral some of them are morally wrong and we need to resist them and some of them are morally virtuous and we need to promote them um so in one time and place, part of what it means to be a man might be that you hold the door open for a woman. And mm. um, many of us would say that. that's a pretty virtuous understanding of, of being a man. Um, that might be different in another, in another culture. Um, and it, it's one of those things where, you know, we, we both men and women are to bear the same fruit of the spirit it's not as if women have one half of the fruit and men have the other half. All of us call to be full of life, you know, love, joy, peace, and, and so on. So we can't say, well, gentleness is a feminine thing and, and lack of gentleness is a masculine thing. No, no, gentleness is meant to be a spiritual thing. Um, but having said that, I think the fruit of the spirit in, in a godly woman will produce biblical femininity and the fruit of the spirit in a godly man will produce biblical masculinity, I'll recognize a difference. I won't always be able to pin it down.
1: Should churches then try to teach this idea of biblical manhood and womanhood?
0: Um, yes, in as much as we're teaching what the Bible says.
1: but It's when we go, with, when we go when, beyond what the scripture says about it. Yeah. Or, or we take a cultural thing it's in prevalent in one culture and then make it applicable to our own.
0: Yeah, we, we kind of give it biblical authority when it doesn't have that.
1: Which is, I think, what a lot of people have been uh, dealing with and longing for in, in in many ways, because there is so yeah. much confusion, especially I mean, in what th- we see going on today.
0: Yeah, and I, I think I was, I'm fascinated by by King David in this respect, because there are certain ways in which King David
1: fits the stereo-
0: stereotype. Yeah. He's he's got authority. He's he's a warrior. He's done away with giants and that kind of stuff. So he, he checks certain boxes in terms of the stereotype of a real guy. But then you think there's other, other aspects where he doesn't. He, he sp- spends a lot of time playing a harp and writing poems about his feelings. And those also are expressions of David being a, a godly man. So I, I think the Bible just gives a slightly broader examples of what it can look like to be a godly man and a godly woman than, than we often find ourselves dealing with in the church.
1: Why do you think that this issue has is become so prevalent now? Not that I want to revisit Truman. Yeah. But why is it now? When we're talking about issues, you and I both know that orthodoxy is always defined when it encounters heterodoxy. Mm. And we have to define it. That's what the creeds are about. These are what our statements of faith have been about, the confessions over the years. The culture is always responding to the spirit of the age that is and it has to to codify it and then pass that on to the next generation Mm. why is that happening though now where we're actually discussing something that has been so foundational since the beginning of time that just two generations ago this wasn't even an issue on the horizon Mm. and now it's become center in the debate but why now yeah well there will will be some
0: historical sociological reasons for that i think right. our our idolatry of sexual fulfillment has been a key aspect of it um i think too there's there's there has to be a part of the answer that is is spiritual um it is if you if you can't get your hands on the king to depose him the next thing you do is attack his image hmm. Um, and I, I, I see a, a spiritual dimension to this particular area of confusion because front and center when it comes to us being made in the image of God is that we're made as male and female in God's image. So the way in which that is being so aggressively overturned makes me think there's there's spiritual forces at work here.
1: I agree. Thank you for coming on the show and taking those questions. The, That's a pleasure. These, these are issues that are that everyone, I think, is dealing with. And I think a lot of churches have put this to the periphery for so long. And they just focused on the majority, hoping that they didn't encounter this. Or if they did, yeah. they just get magically fixed. And I think you're seeing, in many ways, God wanting to bring this, this group into the kingdom. And he's forcing the church to be equipped to be able to handle that. I know yeah. one one man written wrote a book about that I read years ago when I was an undergraduate called Unwanted Harvest. And I think that's very true. Um, hmm. But I think it's causing us to say, wait a minute, how does God love us? And yeah. the way you look at someone else is actually how God should look at us, but he doesn't. He loves us and he loves us in our in our sin. And all of our sin, as you said before, we're all in the same boat. It's just the expression of that, that sin comes different to every single one of us. But Sam, how can people follow you and get your book? I mean, then go on um, Amazon and get it, but... Crossway. I'm on
0: I'm on Twitter, um, so you can find me there, um, and I, I do have a website that I never update, so that's probably not <laughs> a very useful place to go, but yeah, I'm on Amazon and Twitter, it's probably the easiest thing to say.
1: Okay. Well, Sam, I want to thank you for coming on Apollos Watered, and may God continue to bless your ministry and use you to reach out to see uh, people be transformed by God's wonderful grace. Thank you for coming on the show. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Travis. Such an important and necessary conversation. What I really appreciate about Sam is he is pastoral in his approach. Tim Tennant was an amazing academic, and Nancy Piercy really had her her fingers on the shape of the, the culture and what people are thinking in intellectual circles. But Sam comes at it not only as a person who thinks, but a person who is seeking to speak to those who are really struggling, not as someone there to condemn, but someone there to give them hope, to point them to the reality of who Jesus is. And may his tribe increase. May those who are giving that hope continue to grow because our world needs that right now. Not only does it need hope, but it needs also a voice of truth. People who point people to the reality of who Christ is, and the reliability of the word of God in what it says about who God is and who we are. And I want to let you know that if this episode has helped you, then would you consider partnering with us? We are in our ready to fly campaign where we're looking for 80 new watering partners before the end of the year. Without you, this, this ministry cannot fly. We need you. And here's an incentive. For those who joined the watering team, we will be giving you an Apollos Watered drop logo T-shirt. You can sign up online and someone from our team will be in contact with you to get your information. Simply go to apolloswatered.org and then in the upper right-hand corner, you will see a support us button. So check that out. And we'd love to have more people grow from connecting with Apollos Watered. If you have been impacted, While listening to one of these episodes, would you do us a favor and screenshot the podcast, text it to a friend, share it on your stories, or simply share it directly from your podcast platform, subscribing and leaving a review and let it be a good review, puts it out there also for more people. Remember, There's also content on our Instagram, Facebook, and our website that is shareable, and there will be much more to come. We hope to have many articles for you, as well as videos in the very near future, and a store that we hope to launch in 2022. But together, let's leave a trickle of truth and encouragement around the world and watch people grow. Much thanks to our Apollos Water team of Kevin, Melissa, Donovan, Eliana, Rebecca, and Audrey. Water your faith, water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody.